Amen. If you will, take your Bibles and join with me in turning to Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 8 through 17. While you're turning, I want to welcome those who are joining us uh, through our Facebook live stream. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that this will be an encouragement to you. Romans 1, beginning in verse 8, let us hear God's word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the incarnate word the bread of life that has come down from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. And today we long to partake of him. So Lord, speak to us now. We pray for the work of the Spirit in our midst to, to open our eyes and give us understanding and strengthen us and encourage us. May we be forever changed for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Well, it's Reformation Day 2020, and those of you who have been here or uh, a similar like-minded church uh, will recognize the significance of the day that we're celebrating. The actual uh, date of Reformation Day is October 31st. A lot of people think it's Halloween, but uh, you know they'd be mistaken. October 31st, 1517 something very significant happened that day. A German monk named Martin Luther had written down 95 theses. These are what we would call talking points, uh, something that should be discussed amongst uh, those who want to participate in the discussion. And he did something that uh, we might look at as dramatic. It really wasn't very dramatic in their day. This is what people did. If you wanted to discuss something, you, you wrote a list down and you took it to the to the church door and, and posted it. 
so that people could pass by and see and oh, okay well the next time we get together and talk this is some of the things that we're going to talk about well Luther did this and probably had no idea what would ensue because of it uh, some of the students it seems took this a copy of these 95 theses, or they took the original rather, and made copies and started sending them all over Germany and all over Europe. And what an uproar it caused. Uh, we can debate the significance of October 31st, 1517. Uh, Luther wasn't the first reformer. There were reformers before him, and there were many that came after him. All rejected by the church all now why why were they rejected well there could probably be several answers to that question but I think most significantly they were rejected because they believed in the preaching of the gospel for salvation the preaching of the gospel it was enough for them to preach the gospel and see people come to faith, to repent and believe. Uh, in Luther's time, uh, the church had gotten into some very unusual practices, uh, unbiblical practices. And uh, one in particular was this practice of selling indulgences, if you remember them referencing on our uh, theme song for today, if you want to call it that. Well, what was this? Well, this was just a little paper receipt that uh, the priest or, or, or one of the Pope's uh, appointees could write out if you paid them giving uh, forgiveness to you or maybe one of your dead ancestors, getting them out of purgatory uh, a little bit sooner. Now, you've got to understand, this is a way of extracting money from people who are already extremely poor. The people who had been connived into thinking that this is this is how you can be saved well this and, and many other outward things were what was being emphasized in Luther's day uh, partaking of the mass and doing penance and uh, not only buying indulgences but giving every spare penny you earned uh, as ties to the church not only was this taking place, but church leaders were involved in every kind of impropriety and schism that you could imagine. Luther simply issued a call to return to the proclamation of the gospel as the means of salvation. And the world was turned upside down because of it. The gospel faced opposition in his day in all times previous and in all times since. It always will. The truth will always be opposed. It's being opposed today. And the question that I think is before us, uh, every generation of believers, is this. Is it enough? Is the gospel enough? Or do we need to change it, add to it, adjust it. Things change. Does the message have to be changed? And what about our response to it? Do we simply believe or must we believe and do more? Must we 
earn God's favor somehow. Well, I want us to begin this morning by recognizing the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel. If you'll notice in our text, Paul says in verse 16 that it, uh, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. With such a, a small statement, we must recognize the significance of that statement. The gospel must be central. It must be our focus. And so I want to just call your attention again, as I've done many times before, and I will continue to do this as long as I stand up and preach, to make the gospel central. Uh, this could be illustrated like this. <clears throat> you've probably seen, maybe you've even participated in, an archery competition. Now what happens? Well, you've got someone with a bow and arrow, and some distance away they have a target. Now that target is not just a blank target, is it? No, it's concentric circles, and there's a, a big one on the outside, and then there's a smaller one, and, and the closer you move to the center, the, the circles get smaller until there's just one in the middle. What do we call that? The bullseye, right? I don't know where that came from, but that's interesting. I think it's because that, that little circle in the middle is always black, and it just looks like a bullseye. I don't know. Now, the person who is shooting the arrow, what is their... What is their target? Is it just the target? If they just shoot and hit the outside, is that, oh, well, hey, you hit the target. No, what are they trying to do? They're trying to hit the middle. They're trying to hit the bullseye, right? The closer you get to the middle, the more points you get. For us, the gospel must be like that bullseye. It must be central. It must be our focus. It's the focus of Scripture. I'm not going to get into that now. I've spoken on that many times. <laughs> it is to be the focus of our lives. It is to be the, the focus of our churches. But it's not enough to just recognize the centrality of the gospel if we don't know what it is. And so let's begin there. And, and I'm going to admit now, uh, uh, I've got a few things that I want to mention to you today, and I'm going to just kind of briefly talk about them. All of these could be their own sermons. But let's begin with a basic definition of the gospel. Uh, what is the gospel? Well, we could probably quote that passage that is familiar, I think, to most of us in 1 Corinthians 15. You know what I'm talking about? 1 Corinthians 15, you remember Paul says there, I would remind you of the gospel. And then he goes on and says a couple of verses down that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now that's a basic understanding of what the gospel is, that, that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again. The gospel is news. It's, it's good news. It's a historical event, something that took place in history. Why is it good news? It's not just news, is it? If anybody else dies, it's news. But if Jesus dies, it's good news. Why? Why is it good news? Because Christ died for our sins. 
We have a problem, don't we? We have sin that must be atoned for. And Jesus has come and done that. And if that's not good news to you, well, it's the best news, isn't it? It's the best news that there possibly could be. The idea of the gospel has an Old Testament background. One scholar that I, I researched this week says that the root and its derivative occur 30 times in the Old Testament. 16 of these are in uh, the books of Samuel and Kings. Seven are in Isaiah. Uh, the root meaning is to bring news especially pertaining to military encounters. Now, now, why is that significant? Well, what would happen? Uh, uh, the, the military would go off and fight. And as they begin to win the battle, they would find a messenger and say, hey, send back to the people. They need to hear the good news. And so he'd come back and say, hey, we, we've won. We won. We're not in danger anymore uh, under this enemy. We've been saved. That's the, the, the background of the, the, the word gospel. And that's the context. If you remember, we read this passage from Isaiah 52 earlier about how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Why? This, this person is running to tell everyone, hey, guess what? We're safe. We've been saved. The, the enemy has been defeated. That's a basic definition of the gospel. We could go much, much deeper, but for time's sake today, I'm going to move on. And I want you also to see not only the basic definition, but I want you to see the sufficiency of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel. Uh, this verse here, verse 16, says that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's where the power is. It's in the message. It's not in the messenger. Amen? There are some really good gospel preachers out there and there are some that are not so good. But I'll tell you this, you can't improve the message. The message is good, and it's as good as it can be. <laughs> There's power in this good news, and only in this good news. No one can be saved apart from it. I can't save you. You can't save anyone. No matter how great the preacher is, the preacher can't do anything except stand up and deliver the message. Think about this, brothers and sisters. The, the, the most able men who have ever lived and the weakest men who have ever lived can all be used by God because of the sufficiency of the message. The power is in the message, not in one's ability. I want to illustrate this uh, in this way. Let's say that you have gotten a letter. I've kind of given you something like this before, but you've gotten a letter from that uh, rich uncle that you didn't know you had, distant uncle, and he has died and left you a fortune. Now, that's good news, isn't it? Probably going to change your life. Now, 
let's think about the way that this message came to you and particularly the mail carrier. Any mail that you get, do you look out at your mail carrier and go, you know, I don't like my mail carrier. My mail carrier is really, really skinny, scrawny. Probably doesn't have any good news for me. I'm not even going to go get the mail. I, I don't like my mail carrier. Or maybe you go, oh, you should see my mail carrier. Works out, strong, can bench press 500 pounds. I can't wait to get my mail every day because I know, but because I have a great mail carrier, he's going to have really good news. Do we do that? Some of us probably don't even know what the mail carrier looks like. Does it have any effect on the news? No. That's silly. The gospel is the power. It's, it's sufficient. And not only is it sufficient, but it is, is simple. I want us to, to see the simplicity of the gospel. Our text in verse 14, uh, Paul says here, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, and listen to this, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, what do you think he means by that? I think this is his way of saying to, to the educated and to the unlearned. There's not a, a specific class here with which we target the gospel. And we don't tell those who are less educated, uh, you know what, you're probably not going to be able to forget, figure this out. One's level of education does not determine whether or not they understand because the gospel is simple. It's a simple message, isn't it? And think about it. It's such a simple message, and yet many of the world's leading scholars, probably most of them, reject this message. Oh, they're so learned. They're so smart. And yet many, with little to no education, can hear this good news and receive it by faith. Because it's simple, isn't it? You don't have to attain a certain level of education to understand this message. In fact, I would caution you about taking that approach because Jesus said this in Mark 10, 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And by the way, I just want to say to all of you young people, I hope you are listening this is not a message. Don't sit there and say, well, I can't understand this. You can understand. This message is for everyone in this room. We must recognize that because of the simplicity of the gospel, this message knows no boundaries, no intellectual boundaries or cultural or ethnic or, or socioeconomic boundaries boundaries and the reason is because there is no boundary we're all in the same group we're all sinners from the most brilliant to the least educated all have sinned we're all in the same boat aren't we 
So all these divisions that, that people want to talk about, how well you, you have to, you know, you, you can't understand it unless you see it from this perspective or unless you, you know, this or that or unless you study Greek and Hebrew. No, 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 no. We're all sinners dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a beautiful phrase here called the righteousness of God in verse 17. And Martin Luther saw this and, and he studied this and his understanding of it initially was something that terrified him because he thought there's no way I can be saved by this righteous God. How can I be right with God? But he continued to study and he, he realized that in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. God can save sinners. He's shown to be righteous. What a, a simple but beautiful, glorious message that changed his life, and I hope it's changed yours. We see the, the centrality of the gospel. I want us to consider a few ramifications of the gospel, and I want to begin with faith, the gospel and faith. Paul says here that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, what? Believes. To everyone who believes. And so we must ask, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? I think this is a very important question. It doesn't just simply mean to, to know or to acknowledge or to understand. Again, this is something that we could spend a lot of time with and we have spent some time with it in the past about what it means to be uh, a true believer. But I would say that to simplify things, we must understand that this word means to trust. Trust is such a good word, isn't it? You might say, I believe you. And there may never be any indication that you do. I've talked about the DeSoto Bridge many, many times. And you might say, I believe that bridge is going to hold my car up. But do you trust it? Do you drive across it? I can give you an illustration that you've probably seen hundreds of times in movies. Uh, someone's walking along the edge of a steep uh, cliff and they slip and fall, but they catch themselves with, the, uh, with a limb or something and they're hanging on and somebody else comes along and says, Hey, take my hand. I can save you. How do you know that person really believes? How do you know they really trust? They reach out and take that hand, don't they? Because they know they need to be saved. <laughs> they know that person can save them. The church in Luther's day had put excessive burdens and concocted ways to extract money for forgiveness. We mentioned the sale of indulgences. You bought these, you could purchase forgiveness. You had enough money. So you bought these little pieces of paper that promised to uh, grant forgiveness to you. Uh, this and other things. You had to do. You had to do. And you had to do and do and do and do. And maybe if you did enough when you died, you'd be okay. What a way to live, isn't it? <laughs> Luther 
came to see the problems with what the church taught as he studied the scriptures and he came to a different understanding about faith. And this is one of the quotes that I found that Luther said about faith. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. In other words, faith is evident, isn't it? You can see it. Faith is fruit, isn't it? Look at verse 8. I don't know if you noticed this when we read through it the first time, but Paul says there, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Think about that. The faith of these Roman believers other people knew about. It was evident. People passing through Rome, Christians traveling to different churches throughout the world said, let me tell you about the Romans. They, they believe. They've abandoned their old ways. Faith is evident. And faith is encouraging. This is an important aspect of faith that I think is, is missed often by us. I don't think we recognize the importance of our faith to others. But I hope you do. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. We're encouraged and strengthened through the preaching of the gospel, but we're also encouraged. In other words, we give others courage when they see our faith. You may not recognize all the, the, the different things that are taking place when we come together week after week. One of the things that's taking place is you're encouraging others with your faith. What a wonderful truth this is. We really do need one another, don't we? <laughs> well, let's move on and see something else related to the gospel. The gospel is to believe. We recognize the importance of faith, but we also uh, might wonder, well, how does this come about? How does this faith come? And the answer is preaching. The primary means of the spread of the gospel is and always has been preaching. Paul uh, makes this very clear in the, uh, later in the letter, a passage that we've looked at many times, one I'm sure that is familiar to you. If you uh, think of Romans 10, verse 13, he writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he assumes that there are going to be questions. Such as verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? This is what we're asking now, right? How, how is it that someone can have faith? Where does it spring from? And he says, well, how can one call if they don't believe? He says, and, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? You can't believe in something that you've never heard, can you? Something that's unknown? So this leads to another question. How are they to hear without someone preaching? 
There must be preaching, right? <laughs> For one to call on the Lord, there must be faith, and faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God, the proclamation of the Gospel. Paul continues, verse 15, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so to solidify his point, he quotes that passage that we read earlier from Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see how all of this comes together now? See why preaching is so important? <laughs> so he says here in verse 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Not just preaching, but preaching the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is the first mark of the church. Uh, we might sometimes ask ourselves, well, why am I going to church? Some people might ask you, why do you go to church? There could be a lot of answers to that, but I think first and foremost, the answer needs to be because they preach the gospel. <laughs> Now, in American evangelicalism, <laughs> I don't think that's the case anymore. I think people go to, to church for, for lots of different reasons, and I don't know that when they preach, they're necessarily preaching the gospel. I think in many of our churches, they're not. It's been abandoned. And I think that's what's wrong with the church in America, I use that term loosely. <laughs> you hear about the things that are going on in a lot of our churches and you want to know why, this is why. They've abandoned the message or they've tinkered with the message. They've added to the message. In many churches, there's, there's not preaching. There's two people sitting in chairs dialoguing. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not opposed to that. Lots of times these discussions are, are on how you can be a better person. How to do this, or how to do that. There are skits and dramatic presentations and interpretive dance. I'm not joking. Some guy that's funny, tells funny jokes and funny stories. In some churches, the preacher doesn't even open the Bible. And if he doesn't open the Bible, well, we can be sure that the people sitting out there don't open theirs. Hmm. And so maybe we should ask, can these be true churches if they don't preach the gospel? Well, Luther would say no. And this is what got him into a lot of trouble. <laughs> He said this, Now, wherever you hear or see this word preached, believed, professed, and lived, do not doubt that the, that, that is a true Catholic church. Remember, we, we make it a little c Catholic now. A Christian holy people must be there even though their number is small. Uh, imagine Luther's world what church was. The rituals and the mass the altar. You went into the church. You, you saw that altar. And, and the Mass was basically a, a, another sacrifice. 
and the priest saying his magic words. And if you, didn't, if you didn't participate in that, you couldn't be saved. There was no hope for you. Of course, people didn't even attend for preaching. What, what little talking there was, I don't know that we could call it preaching. <laughs> it wasn't even done in the language that they could understand. It was done in Latin. Only the very well-educated could even understand what the priest was saying. Hmm. But Luther recognized that there was very little gospel fruit from this. He, he said this, The Word is the gospel of God concerning His Son who was made flesh, suffered, rose from the dead, and was glorified through the Spirit who sanctifies. That's what people need. Elsewhere he said this, The gospel is essentially proclamation. Listen to this. Christ coming to us through the sermons. That doesn't make anything of the speaker or the way uh, he uh, necessarily preaches as long as he's preaching the gospel. Some might say, well, you know, it's the lost who need the gospel. The church doesn't need the gospel. The gospel is for, for evangelizing. We go out and take the gospel. But in the church, no, we need, we need other things. Notice again verse 15, Paul says, For I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church in Rome. He's talking to believers. These whose faith is being proclaimed all over the world. Is he saying he wants to come and preach the gospel because they're lost? No. If you're lost, you need the gospel. If you're saved... You need the gospel. It's our only hope. <laughs> One final point that I want to make this morning about the gospel, and I want us to see the relationship between the gospel and the church. The gospel and the church. Verse 15 again, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And again, he doesn't say that he wants to come to Rome to do evangelism work. He wants to come to Rome to see that church and to preach the gospel there. Uh, back up in verse 7, he says who uh, this letter is addressed to, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. So, so Paul addresses this letter to the church. He hopes to come and visit the church. He hope, hopes to come and preach the gospel to this church. And so we, we must recognize the central quality or aspect of the church, which is the gospel. That's what we are about. That is the message that the church proclaims. That is the message that transforms the church, that strengthens the church. It's the message that draws others into the church. You cannot define a church apart from its connection to the gospel. You simply cannot. It is the gospel that directs us and defines us every aspect of us, every aspect. It is central to our worship. When we sing, it is the gospel that informs our songs. When we pray, every aspect Missions, of course, even 
fellowship. Think about this, brothers and sisters. This is something that I, I saw in the text, and I think a lot of people miss this. We talked about how we, we encourage one another through our faith, right? Because we, we see each other's faith. But our fellowship is even gospel-based. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. No fellowship, no unity without the gospel. Simply put, if you don't have the gospel, you don't have a church. That probably just excluded a lot of churches in America. You might have an assembly. You might have a big assembly. Hundreds, maybe thousands. But you don't have a church. Luther saw this, and he had no intention of starting a new church. This is not what he wanted to do. He wanted to, to discuss these things. So he posted 95 different statements on the door of the church and said, let's talk about these things. And hopefully through discussion we can recognize that we've gotten away from Scripture. We've gotten away from Scripture. <laughs> What Luther came to conclude was a radical departure from what he saw growing up and what he was taught. It was a really a, a radical redefinition of what the church was. Everything emphasized the, the priest and the altar and, and mass and so on and so forth. It was radical in Luther's day and unfortunately it would be radical in our day. Because so many people have gone astray. So many churches have gone astray. They've gotten off track. Many churches have been derailed and they don't even know it. They're not even on the right tracks. <laughs> That's why we pray for revival every week. When I stand up here and pray, I pray for revival. I pray for a return to the gospel by our churches. Paul's words to the Galatian churches, I think, would, would be spoken to many American churches were he here today. Uh, Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is potential for, for every period in history. When we talk about the Reformation, we don't mean to elevate these people any more than we should. We appreciate the work that they've done. This is our heritage, and, and we should accept that. It's a heritage that means we must defend the gospel. We don't worship Luther, Calvin, and, and the other Reformers. They were mere men, but they were men with whom we stand. I, I want to close this morning with the words of Scripture, words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church.
Paul stood on the gospel and said that the gospel was enough. It's sufficient. It's powerful. It's simple. It is to be believed. It is to be trusted. It is what transforms. It is the message of the church. The gospel is enough, and it must be not only proclaimed, but defended. These are Paul's words from Philippians 1, verse 7 and 8. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, and listen, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This church was united to the apostle in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's our heritage. And I pray that we would embrace it. And I pray that the Lord would find us faithful in defending the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for this powerful message, this life-transforming message. Lord, not simply was it a historical event. Many, many, many have died since our Lord Jesus Christ. But no one has died for our sins, and no one has been risen from the dead. We thank you that our Lord Jesus rules and reigns and is seated at your right hand. We thank you that he is coming again in power, that he's preparing a place for us and that we will be with him soon. And we pray, Father, that until that day, we would be faithful in preaching and teaching the gospel, in defending the gospel because we believe that it is enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.